0: Okay. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Robin Archer and I'm the Director of the Ralph Miliband Program here at the London School of Economics. And I'm very pleased to welcome you all to tonight's discussion. Um, It's hard to know what to say about Britain and the chaos that is ensuing all around us. But one thing I think we can say that's clear is that there's been a renewed interest in many quarters about basic questions of the structure of the political economy. And tonight we want to debate an aspect of that uh, set of arguments. Um, We've got two speakers, and I'm just going to introduce them in turn. First, we've got Professor Louise Haag. Um, uh, Louise is Professor of Politics at the University of York, and she's written extensively about, well, about many things, about democratisation, about economic uh, justice, um, about social policy, and she's been an advisor to all sorts of national and European institutions and to international bodies connected with the United Nations, like the WTO and the ILO, and she's been very involved in a sort of more sort of activist intellectual capacity with the Basic Income Earth network, of which she is, I think, still a co-chair. Is that I'm the chair.: You're the chair. So she's the chair of this organization. Um, our second speaker is, is Anna Koot. Um, Anna is the Principal Fellow at the New Economics Foundation and she too has written widely about, amongst other things, inequalities, gender, working life um, and also social policy. And she's uh, been a commissioner on the Sustainable Development Commission, both the UK one and the London one. She's worked with international trade unions and think tanks and... um, she, she has, um, well, and in fact what I wanted to say was that both our speakers have just recently published on the very topics they're going to talk about tonight. Um, conveniently one of them has published a book called The Case for Universal Basic Income and the other has published a book The Case for Universal Basic Services. So our speakers are going to talk for about 20 minutes each um, and then after that we should have a good chunk of time for questions and discussion, but before I call our speakers And I just ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers, Louise Haag and Anna.
1: So, thank you. I am to begin. And my talk today is called Basic Income as a Stable Structure in Society. And I'm delighted to be here to speak about my perspective on universal basic income, which I'll do briefly by talking about the current juncture one at which basic income has become increasingly uh, a public debate. And I'll also touch on some of the arguments in my recent book, which uh, Robin just kindly mentioned, which came out with Policy in July. And I'll be arguing that the UBI-UBS debate, which we've been asked to talk about, needs to be set in a wider context, and I'll also be arguing that I don't see a necessary or even substantive conflict between the two. Okay, and uh, I think we are actually perhaps collectively moving in that direction. So, first, what is a universal basic income? It is an income grant paid regularly, permanently, unconditionally to individuals. And in that sense, I argue it can be seen as an institutional innovation, because even if not more money is paid out, the terms on which money is paid, that is unconditionally, matters it represents an important change. And whilst I don't think basic income is a magic bullet, as I argue in my book, or that it can stand alone, I think the principles at stake are very important and even urgent, not only when it comes to income transfers, but when it comes to the governance of the economy and society. So first, how do I move it down? Oops. Oh, no, I seem to have turned it off. There we go. So in terms of the current juncture, I think we've moved very rapidly in the last few years since 2016 when basic income became a global public debate after the Swiss referendum, which you may have heard about, through two stages of debate. Uh, So first, a very charged ideological debate, at least here in the UK, which I think the polemic between UBS, Universal Basic Services, a term I believe is coined in opposition to universal basic income, that polemic represents to now another stage uh, which I think is more about complementarities uh, than trade-offs. So we've seen recently a raft of proposals uh, coming forward which endorse the idea that a share of income at least should be given to residents unconditionally, although the term UBI is still resisted by many people. So, you have similar ideas coming out under different names, such as the weekly national allowance proposed by the New Economics Foundation, which Anna is also uh, a member. Although it's not a UBI, I should say, because it's rich-tested, that is, those uh, earning above, I think it's about 125K, won't receive it. Nevertheless, there are, I think, here an important uh, concession, if you might say so, to principles of universal basic income. Nevertheless, I think despite this growing consensus, or apparently growing consensus, the reasons for universal basic income and for thinking that there are complementarities with other policies and structures are very important, and they will shape the debate henceforth. So that's the third stage of debate that I'm then predicting. So in that context, I've argued we need to pay attention to three factors. First, the conditions necessary for basic income. We used to say in the basic income movement that basic income can do this and that and the other. I think, personally, a basic income can do something quite specific but important, And in that, but in that context, the conditions for basic income are as important as what a basic income could do on its own. And second, the significance of the wider principled reasons for basic income in that context. And third, the connection of basic income with universal services and with development governance, which I think is the third missing element in the polemic as it's couched today. Um, So first, the level and structure of of public finance, of the economy, is, I think, an important condition on complementarities of basic income with services. And we can certainly see that when we compare welfare states, those states that would be better able to sustain introduction of a basic income and also generous public services. Second, transformations in development governance are, I think, an important condition for translating the effectiveness, again, of basic income in relation to outcomes both for individuals and in development governance. So in relation to outcomes for individuals, um, basic income advocates often mention greater control of time or equal standing in social relations (coughs) being improved. Uh, which I think basic income contributes to achieving, but I think that translating those sorts of outcomes depends on efforts to make work and, and employment more occupational in structure. I think this is a challenge of our age. Uh, and this will also, I think, help enhance a basic income's impact on sustainability, um, which I think is linked with reducing competitive pressures on the economy. I think basic income contributes to doing that. And to promote conditions for more intelligent development, as distinct from cheap development driven by mindless uh, consumptions. So, with the implication then that basic income is one, I argue, among a number of stable and democratic structures that I argue we need. And for this reason, I emphasize basic income's institutional and developmental properties, those properties within the design, rather than merely the redistributive and monetary properties. And I think that really matters in ways uh, I've already indicated and perhaps I'll um, go on to explain. Um, So in that sense, or in the sense that a basic income is paid unconditionally, regularly and permanently, it is, in fact, I argue, a humanist structure It is even a paternalist structure, if you like, in the sense that it speaks to our existential need for stable structures, for stable foundations, and the knowledge of their continuing. Security isn't security that isn't stable. And we have a lot of evidence that that kind of knowledge of stability or security continuing is key to mental health. And so because then I see basic income as constitutive of human development, I actually see it as a branch of social security. I notice there a slight difference with how it's put in the Labour Manifesto, but we can talk about that later, perhaps. So the way in which I go on to argue that basic income is contributory but not sufficient for democratic and humanist governance and justice sets my take on basic income apart from more well-known arguments in the left libertarian, more voluntarist, and what I call automation fetishist mood, all of which I believe are too ready to take globalisation as fact and present basic income as a form of rescue or pure utopia. A flatlining of governance, even, where I like to see governance and economic security systems more as a case of architecture, a case of building homes rather than creating a platform for naked agency. So on that basis, I argue we have... Uh, developmental and cooperative interests, I argue in my book, in control of time. And those cooperative interests create, in turn, our interest in forging stable structures in society through political economy. I argue that democratization of human economy uh, entails democratizing what I call developmental institutions. These are institutions that arise in all societies uh, as an outcome of the human life structure. So we're thinking of institutions of education, institutions of work, institutions of social security. Um, and what basic income then does, in my conception, within a systemic perspective on governance, is that it is contributory uh, to humanist justice in that sense, in the democratization of these institutions, specifically social security, by creating a developmental security structure in the ways that I just indicated, and by being a source of differentiation among the other institutions in the sense that people have more of a sense of agency in terms of how they interrelate with these other structures uh, in society. So in that context, I make a number of more specific, I call them historical arguments, uh, in the book. Um, which I'll just stipulate here rather than go into huge detail. So first, I see the case for basic income in deep historical terms as a missing piece. I see basic income as a missing piece in the modern welfare state. It's not either a new idea or a new need, so to speak. And in that context, I talk about the contradiction historically between delivering services unconditionally and equally to the rich and poor, but making access to subsistence security into a status stratification, um, the result being to make employment and social relations in the economy unstable, and to contribute to generating poverty traps, which happen when individuals have to choose between security in society and employment because they can't have both. So, in terms of the historical case, then for basic income, I think there are four acts, and it's the way history sort of influences the next wave of reforms. When you have a poor design, it tends to reproduce itself. So the first act is the stigmatizing poor laws of early modernity and the long moral shadows in terms of how we think about the poor. The second act is then the design flaws that reoccurred in the modern post-war welfare state, which I've just talked about. The third act is neoliberal globalization, which aggravated those flaws. And the fourth act is now the redemocratization, intelligent development, and humanist governance that we now need to aspire to. And in this sense, in one piece, I've talked about basic income as a pivoting reform in the sense that I think because of the principles at stake and what it sets forth for us in terms of humanist governance, it can aid in propelling us towards other changes, even if basic income itself is not sufficient. So in terms of the current juncture, then, I in arguing for basic income, also contest the rise of a punitive and exclusionary form of governance, which we've seen intensifying, not just in the UK, but across Europe in the last 10 years. And I argue, in a context of intensified global competition and precarious in employment, the rise of 0 hours contracts in large corporations being a very clear indication, you have seen disempowered states turning to austerity, beginning to pick apart existing social economic security systems, flatlining them, uh, but also making them more coercive, both by withdrawing services and making conditions of income security more stringent with the imposition of sanctions. And so I argue this generates a number of governance pathologies in the form of a more punitive state and a more fragmentary system of social services. So on the one hand, you have ever more stringent conditions on accessing support, be it services, be it income assistance, even though people have less control over their position in the economy. And on the other hand, there is ever less human contact in the delivery of those conditions and in accessing services. You have the rise of the web wall where people wait in endless phone queues or face faceless applications and reapplications every time their status in the economy or the employment changes just a little bit. So, second, a second argument I make in the book is then that I see basic income as a contribution to humanizing or rehumanizing the welfare state and the economy on a new foundation. And this is in ways that go beyond the basic income itself because I think it's unconditional design helps make explicit the question of the relationship between the citizen and society and how that ought to be governed. So then last, in terms of uh, the book itself, I set the case for basic income within a wider research program in which I've looked at the democratic constitution of the economy and of well-being. So one set of surveys, which was published in a journal called World Development, showed there were synergistic effects, this is effects that add up to more than 100%, uh, tied to combinations of economic security structures. And so if you look at the effect of longer education and more stable employment, and you add external sources of income security by proxy, uh, for example, unemployment insurance, which here acts as a proxy for something like a basic income, the latter you see enhances the effects of the others when you, when you look at intrinsic motivation and so this path diagram here on my slide shows how these different sources of uh, security interact to support intrinsic motivation, that is, in this case, valuing work for itself rather than as an instrumental goal. And so on the other hand, in my work on welfare states, I've argued that lower inequality in society isn't just achieved through redistribution, that is, through monetary means, but by it's also shaped by the dispersal of property rights. This may be historically... And the way core institutions that affect daily life, such as I mentioned earlier, education institutions and systems and employment institutions and systems, how they are resourced and how they are governed. Um, so this figure plots two indices of the level and structure of public finance uh, and a representation of overall and select items of public investment in human development development. Um, I can't go into the detail of how the indices are composed. They're in my book. Uh, But the point is that the the graph suggests that both public finance capacity, these are the conditions for basic income I talked about before, and intention, so this is the commitment to human development, Uh, both are involved in higher levels of human development spending, such as you see in the Nordic States. So this graph is 2000, the same index you you played in the mid-2010s, and I think quite interesting what you see is actually countries moving further away from each other, so countries have not necessarily become more similar uh, in this regard, which shows how important institutions, how important staple structures that are laid down historically, uh, turn out to be in the context of global change. Um, I also argue looking at Nordic states that you see a coincidence over time between high levels of public investment in education and more generous and less conditional income security. And this capacity, if you like, to govern govern through a more humanist uh, perspective, you see this replaying again even in a context of the administration uh, of uh, a more coercive benefit sanctions regime. And so here you see that in the relationship between how much states spend on administration and how much they spend on training and other measures for unemployed people. And here you have pre-austerity 2007. You see uh, the UK and Denmark are the two countries I look at in more detail. Uh, And you see whilst they spend the same on administration, Denmark spends a whole lot more on training. Okay, then we go to uh, just after the crisis. Uh, Denmark spends now more on benefit administration, this is when sanctions begin to be implemented, but actually when you look at sanctions, they're implemented in a somewhat more protective manner. Then you see a whole lot more spending again as sanctions uh, regimes uh, become intensified. uh, intensified. You see a similar level of sanctions in Denmark and Britain, one in four benefit claimants receive a sanction every year in both countries at this time. And then finally you see what I call the backlash, because uh, partly uh, as there are more systems of scrutiny, of benefit administration in Denmark actually sanctions uh, come into question. You see municipalities are beginning experimenting with lifting conditionalities uh, in Denmark, which is, I think, uh, quite an interesting um, development. So, finally, in terms of underlying academic debates, um, the architectural view of economic security that I advocate, of which basic income is an element, has implications then... Um, for some, how, how we might interpret some of these underpinning academic debates. So the UBR-UBS polemic, for example, that we're talking about today, I think to some extent represents a wider clash in the literature uh, or builds on it uh, between the left libertarians and the capability uh, or human development perspective, uh, which, um, and I talk about that in my book, and um, in, in this clash relies on seeing basic income as a representation of a certain libertarian philosophy of strict egalitarianism, that is, we all get the same in the welfare state, not just in terms of, or basic income somehow incorporates a lot of what we normally think of as services. And I think when basic income is looked in that way, in isolation, it can then imply the flatlining I talked about at the outset. But my point is, you don't have to see basic income that way, it is just one way of justifying basic income. But just to illustrate the way the polemic is portrayed uh, in, in diagrams or in the popular understanding. Here you have uh, a picture of a family. It's just standing on boxes trying to watch a football match. And you can see the boxes here in the first image, they represent the basic income or the strict egalitarian idea of a basic income standing on its own. And what you have then is the father is able to watch the football match. His, his wife or daughter? I'm not quite sure. It's just about able to... Uh, raise her head above the parapet, and, and her, his disabled son can't see. Uh, but from a capabilities perspective, one should distribute resources by need. You resolve the problem. So the issue I have with that is why I agree with the problem is that actually this idea, this image of the boxes, takes security for granted. It takes for granted that the basic structure to security society is, in fact, stable and unconditional, which precisely it isn't. Uh, and so my answer to that is to colour in the boxes at the bottom and say we need to secure the foundations of the building, and then we can have this architectural, uh, multifactorial approach to economic security, which includes basic income as a kind of foundation for the rest. And so here's just a representation of, of this idea that we can all, in different, different shapes and sizes, be on the road as long as our needs, different needs are satisfied. And I, I've, I argue the road is broken. Right? The basic security system is broken. We have unstable security. We don't know how long it lasts and when it will be taken away. We have coerced security in the form of sanctions. Uh, and we have a rise in the number of individuals falling out of society. In Britain, I believe, rising from one-third to two-thirds of individuals who notionally are entitled to benefits, who can't claim them or don't claim them, and who are often discouraged, frankly, from claiming them, and many of them have, having been re, in receipt of sanctions. So in that context, I'm arguing for a version of what the health equity economists call proportional universalism, a slightly revised version which in fact, in working with the World Health Organization, we've come up with a model like that, uh, which is a bit like the boxes I argued for before, where we have uh, differential resourcing by need, but you also have certain stable structures in society that should be uh, enjoyed equally by all. So, if I have two minutes, I don't know, then I will just briefly come back to the UBS-UBI polemic again and just uh, say I hope I have said that in a broader context, but I also want to question, actually, how radical either the UBI or the UBS concept really is, because one of the titles of this talk was that we we are presuming that these concepts are radical. And in the case of UBI, I think the only reason we think it's radical is because we didn't do something which is actually quite elementary at the uh, beginning, at the onset of, of starting to build a modern welfare state, and because we didn't, we now think it's radical. And in relation to the UBS... I think, um, if I understand it correctly, UBS is in fact a case for returning or rebuilding the universal welfare state, um, and and it's sort of a nod to universal services, therefore adding some new, very interesting elements in a context in which services are corroded. So again, not particularly radical concept either. Uh, And I think then in the sense that neither are radical and both are necessary and support each other. We're talking about a difference, not of substance, but perhaps of sequence. How are we going to go about uh, um, transitions that include both of those elements in different forms? And finally, concluding, uh, a few notes of caution about the debate and going forward. So, I think in terms of basic income, we are going to be looking at gradual transitions. Uh, partly because there are funding issues, but also because I think it's very important to think about affinities with other systems. I've talked about employment uh, uh, systems, but also contributory systems of different kind of tax and so on. And um, I think these deserve to be studied comprehensively. And I hope uh, in that context what we'll see going into the future is that this becomes not a party political debate, but a much wider debate in society. Secondly, I think the debate in the UK has been redistributively charged, and this is typical of the debate in the UK about welfare in general. It's very much focused on how much those things cost right now, uh, and a tendency, therefore, to think about targeting as, as not just a temporary, but actually ends up being a permanent solution, because, of course, when there's greater need, you want to focus on the poor. The concern, however, is then will universalism get lost? And universalism is, at the end of the day and in the long run, very important to build in a different kind of welfare state, right? One, uh, that is based on equal standing between citizens. Third, I think then the UK scenario is very conservative. If you look at the different proposals for universal basic income, they are necessarily very low, low levels of benefits compared to some of the countries and sometimes even a quarter of what you see in some of the European countries. Fourth, we should not isolate the basic income from other, therefore, institutional changes will help support funding for a range of measures. And finally, I think it's important to see basic income as a seminal change, a seminal institutional change to the welfare state, one um, that is above party politics, say that not least since we are in election mode. Um, I think like the franchise and like the NHS and like universal schooling, once the principle is established, it will be hard to overturn. That is one reason for not going the targeted route but go straight for universalism even if it's a low level. Um, I think the failure to support subsistence as a right is what has made social policy and citizens uniquely vulnerable to economic cycles and has led states to descend into the coercive structures which we've seen uh, emerging in the last 10 years in particular. So in that sense, and that's my concluding remark, even a low basic income and granted it's not the answer to everything, and it's only, uh, and it's not sufficient, would be a path-breaking democratic innovation. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you very
2: much for inviting me. Um, So I'm going to be talking about universal basic services, what it means, why it matters, how we can make it happen. Before I start, I just want to um, pay tribute to my co-author, of our forthcoming book, Andrew Percy, who's here, I'm glad to say. Now, it was Andrew and his colleagues um, at the University University College London the Institute for Global Prosperity who first put the phrase universal basic services into the uh, discussion, into the debate, and um, and we've been building on that ever since, so um, I'm very glad that he's here. Um, So what does UBS mean? it's always easier to um, explain this in reverse order. So what we mean by services is collectively generated activities that serve the public interest. And by basic, we mean services that are essential and sufficient rather than minimal so that they can enable people to meet their needs. And universal means that everyone is entitled to services that are sufficient to meet their needs regardless of their ability to pay. So that's what, in a nutshell, what we mean by universal basic services. Why does it matter now? Well, I probably don't need to tell you this. We are in a really bad mess. We do need some bold Ideas, some bold new ideas and changes. Um, We we have widening inequalities, we've got deepening poverty, we've got acceleration towards ecological catastrophe. And we've got the churning in the labour market as partly as a result of automation, new insecurities. And particularly relevant to this debate, the collective values of the post-war settlement have been pushed out by market values. So we have individualism, choice, competition, and consumerism. And public services have been badly damaged by austerity and by anti-state politics. So the idea of universal basic services that rests on three principles. The first one is shared needs. These are um, life's essentials that enable us to survive and flourish, and they're common to all of us. And they're different from wants and preferences. So that's the first thing, we share these needs. Secondly, collective responsibilities. We're pooling resources and sharing risks so that we can all meet all of our needs. And that we see as the fundamental basis of social life. Third principle is sustainable development. We're meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. And some of you will recognize that phrase from the Brundtland Report. So those are the guiding principles for universal basic services. Just a word more about needs, because this is very important to get this understood as the basis of what we're talking about there are certain, some of you will be familiar for, with this, forgive me if you are, but uh, there are certain basic needs, physical and mental health, being able to think for ourselves and being able to participate in society. And those have been um, identified as, as basic needs by the capability theorist uh, Martha Nussbaum by Ian Goff, who's also here this evening in the theory of human need. And there are intermediate needs, which are essential for satisfying those basic needs. And these have been described, have uh, been listed as uh, water, nutrition, shelter, secure and non-threatening work, education, health care, security and childhood, significant primary relationships, physical and economic security, and a safe environment. Now, these are the things that we need in order to meet those basic needs, and they are common to all of us. And also, but the thing that's different there is that the intermediate... Intermediate needs do evolve over time, and there, it's, it's people have begun to identify access to transport and digital information as intermediate needs. These needs are universal across time and space, and they allow for sufficiency. So, but, but how they are met varies widely between locations and generations. And that idea of sufficiency is very important when it comes to sustainable development. I'll come back to that. Now, I want to talk about the social wage, because UBS is about enlarging the social wage. And this is roughly how we see it working. We all expect to buy some of life's essentials, we think back to the needs thing, ourselves. For instance, food and clothing, provided we have enough money to do so. There are some things that we need and we can buy for ourselves, but only if public policies ensure that they are genuinely affordable. For example, housing, access to transport, and digital information. And then there are some things that we need, but we can only afford if we're very rich. Um, education, healthcare, childcare, adult social care would be in that category. So the social wage is therefore vital. What it provides is collective services for life's essentials, the ones that people can't afford to pay for themselves, so it's a a virtual income. And it also includes income support so that everyone has enough money to pay for affordable essentials. So the UBS proposal is we want more and better public services available to all according to need not ability to pay and that means improving and extending existing services will be familiar to all of you things like schooling and healthcare, and to expand the range to include childcare, adult social care, housing, transport and information. Those are the areas we've dealt with in our book. Um, there are many more things you could you could have, where you could have the same approach, which might include things like uh, libraries and utilities um, and, and much more besides. And plus, part of our proposal is that UBS must be combined with a reformed social security system that is sufficient and non-stigmatizing for all so that no one's income will fall below an agreed level. So that's our proposal. Now, um, Louise mentioned the questionable radicalness of perhaps both our ideas. It's interesting that we feel it's important to be radical now. I think it's a good thing that we do feel we should be. Um, I think this proposal of ours, this set of ideas, is radical for three main reasons. Firstly, it's about reclaiming the collective ideal that has been submerged and discredited by neoliberal politics. Because that is the only way we can all meet all our needs, by working together, by working collectively. Secondly, it promotes sustainable development. The needs-based approach allows for sufficiency, and it allows for sufficiency for across populations and across generations, too. Um, There's much more behind that point, which I haven't got time to go into now. I'll come back to it briefly at the end, towards the end. And the third reason why this is radical is that it aims to transform public services so that they are controlled by the people who need them and that they are adequately supported by public funds and institutions. So this isn't about going back to um, the good old days of um, of of the welfare state. Transforming public services is a very important part of this proposal. So we don't just want more of the same. We want something different. The first point to make here is that investment in universal basic services is investment not expenditure only. It's about valuing and building the social infrastructure. There is plenty we can do to learn from what went right with the uh, Post war settlement, the post war welfare state, and what went wrong with it. So we can learn from um, successes and failures. Um, this proposal includes inclusive and enforceable entitlements. It's about rights to things, not just it being a privilege, or maybe you'll get it if the government lets you. This is about having entitlements so that everybody has a right to services that meet their needs. And it includes multiple models of ownership and control. So it isn't about the state owning all the service providers. It's about encouraging alternative models, um, such as co-ops and social enterprises, but particularly about eliminating profiteering from the mix, so that we have a wide range of provider organizations for these services, but um, minimize and hopefully eliminate profit-making organizations in that mix. Now, what this calls for, this transformation of services, is a new dynamic between top-down and bottom-up politics, and one that is grounded in democratic dialogue. The role of the state, that's a very important thing. So the state does provide some services directly, But there's no return to top-down uniformity, and the new role of the state is focused on key functions, and these are ensuring equal access, setting and enforcing quality standards, collecting and investing funds and distributing them them equitably, and supporting new models of ownership and control and coordinating services to get the best possible outcomes for people. that's how we should see the role of the state, not simply as the, you know, the ever-growing big provider, but as the facilitator of this new landscape of universal basic services. Now, in practice, um, I wish I could say more about this. There's plenty more in the book, but um, what we want to say is, again, this is not about one way of doing everything. Each area of need will require a customized approach to get it right, to get the services, to get the way of meeting people's needs right. So you won't do childcare the same way you do transport. and You won't do housing the same way you do healthcare, obviously. So you need a customized approach. And we build on what's already there. For example, with childcare, we would see there should be universal access with well-trained and suitably paid staff, um, with the parents properly involved and there are examples actually all over Europe but I would pick out Norway as being one of the best exemplars of, of high quality child care adult social care, well there there should be a, pre- a focus on preventing people needing it in the first place uh, universal free access to care, good support for informal carers and bringing those two things together, again well trained and suitably paid staff and there is a, a good model in Germany for the funding arrangements for uh, adult social care that we could look to. Not the only one, but it's it's one that we could point to. With housing, we would look for large scale public building and refurbishment program, uh, changing public land ownership, uh, more mixed neighborhoods, much better tenant control, and there are lessons to be learned among many other places from Vienna and Copenhagen, and the way that they manage housing, which is very different from the way it's done in this country. With transport, we're suggesting, well, free buses for everyone. Let's start there, maybe build on it. Um, Well-connected routes so that people can get to where they need to be. Lessons can be learned from France, particularly the way they finance their transport system, and from Estonia, um, where they've got free bus services uh, in their capital city, And with information, well, the Internet should be regarded as a utility, not a commodity, with universal service obligations. And there are some examples of um, things that are interesting things going on in in Barcelona in particular, but there are many others as well. So that's just a little rush through the practice of it. Um, Now, here are some promises. Everything on this slide is a quote from... Um, recently published document by a particular political party. (laughs) Um, And I think they've been reading our book. So, in childcare, now, these are just quotes. I mean, uh, a new service, Sure Start Plus, with enough centres to provide a genuinely universal service available in all communities. A comprehensive national care service for England, community-based, people-centered support to ensure that older people have their personal care needs met. Housing. Actually, I didn't get this from the manifesto. This comes from another policy document recently published. One million genuinely affordable homes over a period of ten years to be built, a majority of which will be for social rent. Transport a sustainable, affordable, accessible, and integrated transport system founded on the principle that transport is essentially a public service. Access to digital information, you'll have heard about this, full free, full-fiber broadband to all by 2030. And there's more. There's more about libraries being preserved for future generations, updated with Wi-Fi, etc. Guarantee every young person access to local, high-quality youth work, and everyone, uh, and ensuring that everyone uh, has a access to healthy, nutritious, sustainably produced food, and so on. So this idea is in the wind now. It's, it's, uh, it's with us, and it's something we can all grasp and build on. Uh, however, you know, there's a, long, a bit of a distance between promises and um, practice. But supposing that UBS can be delivered... We are convinced that it will deliver real benefits across four dimensions, equality, efficiency, solidarity, and sustainability. Now, with equality, um, public services are worth far more to poor households who would have to spend three quarters of their income on existing services if they went free. Um, and they have been found to reduce income inequalities by about 20% across OECD countries. For efficiency, well, services give better value for money than individual market transactions when it comes to meeting shared needs. There are economies of scale, there's uh, less risk of moral hazard, there's no gaming, no profiteering, um, and competition and choice have been shown to, to fail to drive up standards or increase efficiency. I mean, the example is always quoted, but it is a good one, and that is that the U.S. spends twice as much on healthcare as the U.K. and has lower life expectancy. And then it's also worth remembering that investment in in public services yield really solid, good, long-term social and economic returns. So that's efficiency. For solidarity, the very matter of getting together and pooling resources and sharing risks helps to build a sense of mutual regard and empathy and interdependence. It is itself, it's an expression of solidarity. Um, And calculations built on individual self-interest obviously drive people apart. So the opportunity to build a greater sense of solidarity is there. And then, um, last but certainly not least, solid, uh, sustainability. We, again, this is something we've gone into in more detail in the book, but if solidarity, can, uh, sorry, if sustainability can be seen across uh, society, economy, and environment. Um, we believe, or we, we think our researchers have led us to the view that, that UBS can help to prevent harm to health and social well-being. And because it will be a great source of employment it will generate secure employment, help to generate secure employment to stabilise the economy um, in times of uh, downturns and, and much more besides on that front. And perhaps most important of all a collective system that is based on the idea of sufficiency for meeting the needs that we all share is much better able to help to cut carbon emissions, safeguard natural resources, respect planetary boundaries, than a series of individual market transactions or a system of service providers that's based on on markets. So those are the benefits. I wish I could go into them in more detail, but I can't. I'm now going to turn, just before I finish, to the comparison, if you like, with um, with UBI and, and the, the relationship between universal basic services and universal and, and universal basic income or cash payments, as I call them here, obviously both are essential. The question is how are they going to be compatible? We have estimated the cost of our program our proposed program of universal basic services as being somewhere between four and five percent of GDP. I know GDP is a bad measure, but just bear with me on this one because it's the easiest way to make these comparisons. It is definitely possible to have a, a generous guaranteed income protection scheme that is fiscally compatible, that leaves enough fiscal space to have services too. Now, at the New Economics Foundation, my colleagues are working on a scheme, uh, and they reckon the net cost is about 5.8% of GDP. This scheme is based on the idea of restoring child benefit to 210 levels. It swaps the personal allowance, tax allowance, with a cash payment to all but the richest. Uh, Louise referred to that It's not UBI, it it has a large element of universality to it. It improves Social Security payments by 5% for all, removes caps and reduces rates at which benefits are withdrawn. So that's a sort of package of Social Security reform that we think is fiscally compatible with UBS. But everything depends on how much is going into the cash payments Where are the thresholds? What are the trade-offs? So a sufficient universal basic income, which has been estimated by the ILO to cost around between um, 20 and 30% of GDP, um, is fiscally incompatible with um, UBS. It would just swallow up all the money we would need for more and better services. Then there's a question of whether you could just have a little bit of UBI? A modest or a partial UBI? Well, that really depends, because if it's seen as the first step towards a sufficient UBI, then it's useless, really. It's incompatible fiscally, because it would end up sucking in more and more money, and ideologically. This is my view, that it's ideologically incompatible. Because it's just about giving money to people to buy what they can in the marketplace. And that is, it's in a different space, ideologically, from the idea of people getting together and sharing risks and pooling resources to help each other. And the two, because they will be competing for the same amounts of money, um, they, that creates an incompatibility <coughs> If additional funds can be found, and indeed everybody always says they can and they probably can be found, then, you know, from extra taxes or from a social wealth fund or from borrowing or whatever, then I would say, actually, those extra funds are far more urgently needed for other things, such as um, a Green New Deal and carbon mitigation, than it is for giving uh, universal basic income to everyone, including people who don't need it. So, um... Those are some points about the comparisons and it's worth remembering that an enlarged social wage means that people need less disposable income to meet their needs and to flourish. So, um, now then. Here's a little slide that shows some things that I've been trying to explain in the previous slide. Um, And there's a big caveat here because... This is sort of, it's not quite back of the envelope, but it's nearly just back of the envelope. Um, but it is, it does show you, it is, it is an attempt to compare the kinds of expenditures. So on this side here, the kind of brownie-ready block, that's a sufficient UBI when people are given just about enough to live on, right? And the next one along is a partial or a modest UBI, sort of first step towards, or not, I mean, anyway, it's a modest UBI that you can't possibly live on, but it's like a, a gesture. Um, and then the next one along is our, our, what we reckon it would cost to do what we are proposing for services for UBS. And then the next one along is the, um, the NEF scheme, which combines universal basic services and um, a, a, an overhaul of the Social Security system. Now, what we've done there is we've added in the personal income tax. So they're all gross figures there. So what you can see is that although the NEF scheme, which is the yellow block at the end there, is almost not quite as expensive as the modest or partial UBI, you get the services as well. So for me, there's, on a simple kind of value-for-money basis, there's no comparison between the two. In conclusion, so what we're aiming to do is to build more and better collective services for everybody according to need, not ability to pay, as a matter of right, plus a reformed social security system that gives everyone a guarantee that their income will not fall below a democratically agreed minimum. There are no silver bullets. If you want to pool resources and share risks so that all of our basic needs are met, this is going to be complicated. It requires a robust and many-sided political program with strong, sustained public funding and support. (coughs) Collective services, if they are well-organized, democratically controlled, and adequately funded, are the best hope that we have of promoting equality, efficiency, solidarity, and sustainability. And the challenge now is to make sure that some of those politicians' promises are turned into real results for real people. And I'll just leave you with a sort of key message for Universal Basic Services. It's about reclaiming the collective ideal and working together to meet needs we all share by enlarging the social wage. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, we've got about 30 minutes um, for questions and discussions, so can I just um, take some hands? I, I'll, I'll start by taking individuals, but if there are a lot of people, I might take more than one. And can you just say who you are and if you've got an institutional affiliation, because we have a podcast audience who can't see you. So um, let me start with this gentleman here. Just wait for the microphone, please.
3: Good evening. Uh, I'm an Italian that lives in London, and um, I found quite interesting the presentation, uh, especially from the professor from York University, because uh, in my country the government they just uh, uh, put in place the, uh, the basic income. Uh, the, the new government it has it used this slogan during the election, and now we put in place this uh, basic income uh, recently in the last six months. But they got a lot of critics, a lot of critics because they said that uh, it, was not a, it was not basically coping with the need and the problem in Italy of unemployment and with uh, a huge inequality. Um, so the, the main critics they found on basic income is basically that they don't motivate people to produce or to, uh, to produce income or to basically go to get employed. And so I found that the model of the professor uh, Anna Court that probably is going to meet more the need in a country that uh, has a huge inequality. So I would like to know your opinion on, uh, on that. Okay, thanks. So...
2: More than one question at once,
0: would you? Yeah. Um, well, let's just start with that one, because right. then we gather. Um, if, you, okay. if you just want to... Louise.
1: Well, I mean, I, I reiterate what I said in my presentation. I, I actually agree with almost everything that Anakuta said. You know, I, I'm not... I don't accept the polemic. I don't accept the trade-off between the two things that we're talking about today. Um, so I, I, think, I think it's... But in the case of Italy, you... I think what you're talking about, there's a misnaming of what, what's happening uh, in Italy. It's not a universal basic income, as I understand it. It's a, the introduction, of the beginning of rolling out a minimum income scheme, which Italy has never had. And it still has conditional elements, and I, I believe it's means-tested. So I think it's a whole confusion there over terminology, in any case. But I, can, I, I mean, I, I can quite see how in a country which doesn't have public finance provision for income security as it is, you, know, you, want, you might want to start gradually. I mean, you, you, you may not want to uh, or be able to uh, implement a, a basic income scheme universally. And indeed, the calculations that have been done by one of my colleagues, Corombino, has shown that it would be more difficult uh, until other, other transitional measures and a period of time for raising taxes and so on. In countries like Italy... Uh, Spain or Portugal uh, than it would say in the un- United Kingdom or indeed Scandinavia which are best placed to introduce something like or, or con- converting systems towards having a lower band that is universal and in- unconditional, uh, unconditional
0: Okay um, Other indications Right, um, so I'm going to take someone up there Can I have that woman with glasses first and just remember to say who you are please Hi,
4: my name is Tiffany. I'm an alumni from the LSC. I'm wondering what your opinion was on universal credit, because you mentioned earlier Anna, um, about having no one's income dip below a particular level. To an you know, implementation problems aside, that kind of is the idea of universal credit. So I'm wondering how you, what you think about it and whether you think it's part of what you're advocating for or something completely different.
0: Okay, so we'll hold that thought, universal credit. And uh, the gentleman at the back...
5: Thank you. I'm Philip Kuhn. I'm an LSE law alumnus. Building on the first question, how do you set universal basic income at a level where people are currently in low-income employment won't feel the desire either to reduce their paid work because of the incentive, prov- incentive provided by universal basic income to spend their time on other things? And what are the implications of that on low-cost services, will will it just drive up wages and how will that impact the structure of the economy?
0: Okay, thanks. So if you can hold that, incentives, work incentives, and someone in the middle, please, there. The...
5: Hi, my name's Amr Hussain, and I'm just curious about... Uh, what impact universal basic income could have on inflation. Essentially, could it raise the cost of uh, things to an extent that it would kind of negate the value of the universal basic income itself?
0: Okay. So, Anna, do you want to go first with the credit point?
2: Universal credit. (coughs) Your question, well... uh, my colleagues at New Economics Foundation who are working on an overhaul of the social security system would have to have it replace the universal credit, so it's not part of the scheme that we're envisaging. So that's... Um, I'd like to come back, actually, on the, that first question, because I think uh, it matters hugely whether the introduction of anything, whatever it's called, uh, thinks that or is thought to be on the way to... Um, a universal basic income for everybody that is enough to live on. If it does, then really we should be very worried about it because it will mean that it will be prohibitively expensive and we will not be able to have services any longer if we spend our money on that. And it is no surprise to me that you've got a lot of... uh, um, tycoons in Silicon Valley, for example, who love universal basic income because they think that it will keep the population just about carrying on shopping while they go on uh, making money and the state doesn't have to do anything at all. So there's no collective services. There's no... uh, Yeah, there's nothing like that. So let's just bear that in mind. If we're thinking about UBI... Is it something if we're just going to pay a little bit for it? Just have a little bit to start with. Do we want to go the whole way? And if we do, why? And do we understand what the trade-offs are?
1: Can I come back on that? Because that—that yeah. that was something that was mentioned in the presentation. I mean, I think you have internalised, if I may say so, the libertarian the, the, one of the particularly libertarian proposals for basic income, and assume it's the only one. Not at all, no. Well, no, because... Anyway, carry on. Yeah, if I may. Uh, because I think you're assuming a form of basic income that will cover every other social transfer, and that is certainly not what I am suggesting. I'm saying so, it's a risk. Well, I mean, but that is not a good enough reason not to give people an unconditional right to subsistence. I would like an answer from you as to why you would not want to grant that. Even... And, and since you you are worried about cost, why not accept that a certain level, not just of services, but of subsistence, is guaranteed for everyone? Can't there, isn't there a missing element in the welfare state in the sense that we, have, we guarantee certain things without any conditions, and we know that that has a huge impact on people's mental well-being, and we know from a number of studies that the failure to guarantee subsistence has a huge impact, negative impact, on people's mental well-being.
2: Well, that's precisely what the NEF proposal is all about. You do guarantee a minimum income, but you don't give money to everybody who doesn't, including all those who don't need it. That's the difference. That's what makes the difference between those very big columns where you get no services as well, sorry it's not
1: up there any longer, and the little ones which are affordable. That's simply not true. If you gave the same amount to everyone it would not cost the amount that you have suggested. I haven't seen those figures, but those are crazy figures. Okay? I mean, there are, there are many cost proposals done in the United Kingdom. We have Malcolm Tory from the Citizens' Basic Income Trust who might want to say something about that. that, that show that you can introduce a basic income at a low level universally without those sorts of cost implications. I think you, those are fantasy figures. They're scare figures, and they simply aren't true.
0: Okay. Um, look, I think that's a very interesting debate, but I also want to make sure that the... Um, I also want to make sure that the questions are addressed. And there was a gentleman at the back talking about the incentive for work, and I just wonder if we could, could address that briefly.
1: Okay. Um, well, I mean, again, we have a number of studies... Hmm. Uh, that already show of of schemes around the world, of cash grants around the world and the effects they have. We have control groups that receive and uh, that don't receive and other groups that do receive and so on, who, who sort of mimic or we can assume proxy for the kinds of effects we might see if we introduced a universal basic income. In other words, schemes that allow people to withdraw from the labor market or to change their jobs, which is not dissimilar to what would happen if you had a low basic income. It might not be sufficient. You would need, there would be an incentive to earn. Uh, But there would, in fact, there would be a greater incentive to earn. So if you're looking merely at incentives in terms of income, the difference between the schemes that we have now to different degrees and a universal basic income is that you can keep the security and add to it by earning. So you actually remove the poverty trap. So there are greater incentives to earn just from an income-generating point of view, and that is very important, right? Um, But we also have a number of studies from different countries of unemployed people Uh, looking at their transitions back into work, depending on what kind of security they received and what kind of support they received in terms of occupational training and so on. And it's quite evident that people do want to work and with the right incentives and the right support, people achieve longer-term employment. It's true that through some of the sanction systems we see today and the punitive ways of getting people back into work, you see sometimes short-term high employment effects, but the sustained longer-term employment effects are worse. So people don't stay in jobs for long, uh, or they exit the labour market altogether long-term.
0: Okay. Look, um, we haven't addressed everything, but I think that a lot of people want to ask questions, and I want to, I want to get a number of different people in. Um, let me just survey the scene. Um, so I'll start this person here, w- wait for the microphone, been waiting, and then you up the back in the middle.
5: My, my name's Ron. Um, I'm not in academia. I work in an office for a financial services organisation, and I approach this from um, a bullshit jobs perspective, um, on the basis of which I just don't accept the preposterous costings of universal basic income. Uh, in my view, in a lot of cases, it'll be cost neutral in the sense that um, you're looking at the cost and not the savings. Abolish pensions, etc. ultimately, that would be a saving. But if you look at from the employment point of view, I'm not necessarily talking from a personal perspective, but the job I have now and various jobs I've had before, they could quite easily halve the hours that I work, reduce my salary by 50 percent, um, but pay me the basic income to make up the difference. That is cost neutral. Okay. Now, I appreciate that not every job is like that, but a hell of a lot are, and uh, or a hell of a lot could be because people are spending lots and lots of time doing things that aren't necessary. Now, it's not the case, that as, um, as Professor Anna Cook said, that uh, they would just do it, spend uh, the extra time and money they have from a basic income on consumerism. No, I've got friends who are musicians, artists. They don't need to work. They're working sweeping floors in um, one guy in, in another university. He should be out performing lunchtime concerts, charging people two or three quid, earning a living, generating the economy. That's my view.
0: Okay, thanks. Um, so, uh, so, so a point about the changing nature of work under the scheme. And uh, the woman at the back in the middle, if you just wave your arm around, yep.
4: Um, I'm asking about uh, UBI. You said that people should be given enough money for subsistence, but then if people have uh, all the services that they need, they all have free transport, free uh, healthcare, free education, then I think... Wouldn't that, like, in somehow be enough for subsistence? And then, therefore, any further work you would do, it would be for more than just subsistence.
0: Okay. I don't know if you can hold that point. I'll just take one more person. Um, let's see, this um, person in the white shirt here. Can I, can I ask a question from a woman's point of view? Uh, Yes, you certainly can, but in oh, the next no. round. Um. <laughs>
5: Hi, my name's Rahi, I'm an economist at the Department for International Development. Um, So I have sort of two questions, sorry if that's being greedy. But um, the first question was to do with universal basic income. I was just wondering, if you were to implement a higher minimum wage and restructure the current welfare state to make it more progressive, would you not achieve a greater level of redistribution and assure a minimum level of living? And when it comes to universal basic services, I noticed one of the slides you said the role of government in provision would change. The focus would now become ensuring an equal distribution and a minimum standard. So I was just wondering what the governance structure was with the provision of, uh, the provision of services, um, who would be providing it, and how. All right. Thank you.
0: So let's keep the answers relatively succinct and we get lots more
1: questions in. I mean, I think, where Anna and I agree, uh, actually, I completely agree that social wage is it's a hugely important concept. I think what we need in today's societies is a greater level of socialisation of income and services. Okay? And, and that socialization of income can take different forms. And I think it's important that it does take in different forms. I do not subscribe to the idea that all, all income should be distributed via universal basic income. I think we need public investment into new occupation economies. I think we should support better reward for work and employment. I think we should support stable employment. I don't think these things are mutually exclusive, but they do certainly relate. And the level of basic income uh, needs to be, as I said in my talk, thought about in relation to other systems. And, and needs to be thought about quite carefully. You know, I'm not of the view, uh, and I state this: or this uh, not all advocates of basic income believe that everything needs to be rolled into a universal basic income. That is a particular libertarian view, and actually, it's quite a futuristic one. You know, and uh, although that has also since been modified by the proponents of that view. And I want to say, when we talk about this scaremongering picture of the people in uh, Silicon Valley, I mean, that's completely out of step with reality. We have one party after another, the Labour Party, the Green Party, and right across Europe, right-wing parties as well in the case of Finland, taking up this idea. As I said, it's not an ideological and shouldn't be seen as an ideological idea. It's It's an institutional innovation that will help support many of the reforms that Anna talk is, is, is talking about, I, I simply don't accept that there is the, the sort of conflict that, that, that we're talking about here. And I don't think, as I said in my talk, we should think about this just in terms of the money. We should think about it in terms of the sense of security that people have. Now, there was a the person who said, well, why can't we just, if we have just services, why do we need money at all? But, I mean, if we weren't going to go back to chalk and Barter, where there is no money, and we don't have a money economy, I don't know if that's what you're suggesting, but as long as we have a money economy, and there are positive aspects to having a money economy to a certain extent. It does allow individuals some degree of independence in terms of how to spend their means. If we were to receive everything on on the uh, charity of the community, I think individuals would lose a certain element of mobility and independence. So money does um, properly uh, organized, okay, play an important role in enhancing freedom in society. They just shouldn't be um, given, and I, can, I agree completely with Anna Kut, the, the dominant role in influencing social transactions and social relationships. But, they, but, but money economy does play a role, and it's a reality uh, that we live in. Okay, Hello.
2: Yes. Um, I'm, I'm really intrigued about the fact that We've only had one question about services so far, and thank you for that. Um, I I think one of the things that we're trying to do is to remind people or raise their awareness or put the matter before them in the first place if it's not been really on their agenda before, that, that how we do services, and services is a very unfortunate term, but these collectively generated activities that we do and we can do more of to help each other to meet our essential needs and to live and flourish are really important. So we can go on all evening talking about income, and we will have missed a really important opportunity to think harder about how we do more and achieve more by working together to uh, to, to help each other to meet our needs. So I, that's why, I, I mean, I, I know universal basic income has been around as a kind of a, you know, interesting idea for longer than universal basic services, although, of course, the idea of services has been around for, um, since the formation of the welfare state and and earlier than that. But you've got to start thinking differently. It's not just about money. I think Louise and I completely agree that money is important, and everybody should have um, a right to, for their income not to fall below a certain level, which is different, in my view, from giving everybody the same amount of money. But that that guarantee is really important, as is the guarantee to the services that we need to meet our needs, whether it's healthcare or childcare or adult social care. Or even access to the internet, housing—very important. These things matter a great deal. And I would, you know, like to hear some more comments and questions about the services. I was asked about the governance structure. Um, that was your question, was it? That the uh, well, that if you think about, say, for example, with, with with healthcare, I would see healthcare being provided predominantly by the state, as it is now. If you take childcare, you can grow a lot of really good, vibrant, uh, engaged childcare organisations locally that parents are involved with and that that might be cooperatives or they might be social enterprises. And the role of the state would be there to encourage that kind of development, to make sure that they have the premises, that they've got the funding, that they've got the the kind of institutional support to flourish, for that um, multiplicity of organisations to flourish and to try and eliminate the, you know, the, the sharks coming in from the, um, from the profit sector, for-profit sector, who would like to gobble up and who are already gobbling up a lot of our childcare providers. So um, that's the kind of. So that's the state is a facilitator, a broker, an enabler, rather than just a provider. Although sometimes it is the best provider.
0: Okay. Look, thanks very much. Now we've got someone who's staked a claim over here. Just before we go there, um, I just want to make the point. There are also very welcome people in our audience who are uh, younger people, some people coming from school, which we're always very happy to have. So, do you, all of you feel free to ask questions if you're so disposed? But um, while you're thinking about that, this um, person over here. Yeah, um, it's a
4: really useful. Sorry, I'm just. I'm finding this a really useful discussion. Just say who you are, look. Um, because, um, well, I'm. I'm involved in women's campaigning and have been for many years. And um, from a woman's point of view, um, there are all sorts of angles on what you are saying and the comments from the audience. So one thing, one person said, uh, well, wouldn't it make people... You know, want to work less hours. Well, yes, that would be good because then people would have more time for the crucial relationships that people would like to have more time for in their lives. And in Germany, they have uh, the EJ Metall employees have negotiated a four day work, a 28 hour working week, so that they can have time. Um, Some of it waged for looking after elderly parents and their children. And that is a crucial breakthrough. Sadly, in this country, people have been laughing at the idea of a four-day week. I don't know why. and I think one of the reasons why people laugh is because women's caring work is still not taken seriously. So, for example, when you make a comment that it would be good if people didn't have to sweep floors, the question is, who is going to sweep the floors? And I think it's really important what's being said about... Um, I don't think it should be assumed that the state is, or is going to be benign, um, And I do think it's important the question of money in people's own hands because sometimes the state just is not benign and um, the money in our own hands would mean that we, yes, we would have more time to organise collective services, and women are the ones who massively do the informal organising of collective services already, but that's not recognised, and it's still built into the injustice, and that means that, uh, no, um, women will not end up getting a a higher minimum wage will not solve the problem, because women, when they're bringing up their children, are not in employment. And we already experience a lot of pensions injustice because that is not counted as part of the wage. Um, so I just think all of those things really have to be taken into account. And one of the things that women do a lot of is injustice work where they're monitoring and complaining and dealing with the fact that their loved ones have suffered gross injustices in the system. And a great motivation for work is love. You know, love of the environment, love of other people, and love of things that are beautiful. So when people talk about demotivation or people being lazy or not working, I'm sorry. There's this thing called love and it makes us want to do certain kinds of work and not work that's destructive to the planet or to people or that creates rubbish and crap that nobody needs or military that kills other people because we want to do work that does involve love and we also need money so that we can have those choices and we have a buffer between us and the state just deciding what we should do when it's not always benign.
0: All right, thank you. Now, listen, there are quite a few people who want to speak, um, and I'd, I'd like to get a number of people in if possible. Um, if, if all the contributions are that length, we won't get very many in. So, could I have the woman in the pale blue at the back there?
1: Um, thank you for your talk. Uh, my name's Abby. Um, I'm interested in both UBI and Universal Basic um, Services. I'm just interested more so in terms of the Universal Credit aspect. I know that you said that you might be thinking about sort of getting rid of Universal Credit and replacing that with something. Um, I'm not sure if I was following what is it? Is the, the idea that Universal Basic Services replaces the welfare system? Or I don't quite understand.
0: Okay, and now I just want to see if there's anyone up the top there. Yes, that that woman there next to the microphone.
4: Hi, I'm Nico. I'm an economic student from uh, SOAS. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about um, the role of universal basic income and services in the decarbonisation of the economy. Um, You both mentioned sustainability a couple of times. Um, I know that universal basic income has Gains a lot of interest from the degrowth movement, um, and I wanted to just hear you elaborate a bit on this and your kind of thoughts.
0: That's it. Okay, look, uh, there, there are obviously lots of people, but it's equally obvious that time is pressing. So I think if you could just selectively choose what you'd like to answer. Um. Do you want
1: to go first? Hand? I think the first yeah, question. Okay. All right. In terms of um, sustainability, which is related to degrowth. I I guess degrowth is a means to sustainability or a particular means uh, uh, towards it. Um, I think that by reducing the pressure to enter the labor market at any cost, which is what the current system is creating, uh, and reducing that pressure, not only will it improve well-being and choice and probably better jobs, uh, I think it will also uh, help slow down the areas of of the economy that perhaps we don't need, so to speak. And and I think we'll be able to make more intelligent decisions about development and social investment. I happen to agree very much with Anakut that actually the state needs to play an enabling role, not only through services uh, and in terms of securing people's subsistence. And by the way, I think universal basic income is a solidarity structure. Uh, It it is a mutual recognition of all of are uh, right to exist with some dignity. And actually it's important that even those who are doing very well right now financially have it. What, what I met a number of uh, people working in the new gig economy, w- earning quite well when I was recently in Ireland, uh, and many of them have turned to basic income very, very excited about it because... They may have good income, but their lives are hugely stressful, and they can't leave the life that they're leading, right? So basic income does improve those people's choices. In relating to sustainability and degrowth, also I met a number of farmers uh, when I was in Ireland recently, and I think I might have had a role in in, in raising their interest in basic income, but a a particular farmer organization who who are engaging in conservation uh, in Ireland and represent a number of farmers in various regions in Ireland and are now advocating for a basic, inc- basic income uh, to replace the CAP, uh, the Common Agriculture and Farm scheme that exists, partly because of the nature of the conditionalities and the lack of support that they, uh, that they receive. And for them, I think, in terms of sustainability, it would enable greater security and planning in the conservation work that they are paid to do. So, actually, you see, right across a number of professions, you don't need to just look at people who are currently unemployed. You you can also look at people who are currently trapped in their jobs, right, in the rat race, so to speak, or people who are engaged in so-called conservation and alternative development who need support in order to develop and enhance these activities. So there there are all kinds, I think, short, medium, and long-term complementarities with the sustainability agenda. Yes. Yes. Okay,
2: well, I'd like to pick up this idea of the benign state or the not so benign state and to think about the implications of um, universal basic services and universal basic income. Now, with universal basic services, I, I hope I've, tra- well, I've tried to describe the way in which we can see a, a, a new kind of role for the state as an enabler and a facilitator to do that. And what you would have if you meet people's needs, the, the ones that we have mentioned that we think need to be met through collective action, not just through market transactions, um, if we, you have those met, there will be a, a great many different kinds of organizations all around any country that will have people working in them, who will be creating, who will be providing services, um, who will be under a, 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 some regulatory regime to ensure that standards are good and who will get support from the state and so on. Now, um, that builds up uh, 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 an interest in collective services, in the idea of the service of, 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 the, of the welfare state or the social wage, or whatever you want to call it, and is quite difficult for uh, a government to unpick. If you have universal basic income. And if it's the kind of universal basic income that would make it quite difficult to afford many services, that is a single lever in the power of government that the government can simply turn off. Now, there could be um, a lot of public outrage about this, but it is a one-move cancellation, if you like, as opposed to the kind of unpicking that would have to be done if you wanted to dismantle... um, Uh, uh, an array of universal basic services. So I think that we should not forget... Let me finish my point. We should not forget that... We should not forget that money can be liberating, but only if we can trust the source. So if we're worried about how benign... The state, is. the state is the one who is allegedly going to give us a universal basic income. So I'd say let's try and get a state that will support an array of services and let's try and refocus on the value of um, collective action to meet shared needs through pooling our resources and to combine it with a guarantee that no one's income will fall below A minimum that's democratically agreed. And I think that's the way to do it. And that's how Louise and I get really close and cosy together. It's not quite what she's suggesting, but it's pretty close.
1: We're getting closer. Well, listen,
0: thank you both very much. That's a, a, a great note to end on. I mean, I think we should thank you both for setting out not just a sort of policy-rich set of propositions but also seeking to underpin them with an underlying moral philosophy. And, and we heard a case for the, basic, uh, for the universal basic income which saw it as a, ultimately a source of human security and a necessary condition for human development. And likewise, we heard a case for universal basic services which saw it as a way of reclaiming through rights, collective ideals, uh, through the expansion of a a social wage. And I think these encompassing ways of thinking about things should be food for thought for all of us. Can you join me in thanking our speakers, Louise Haig and... uh